One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah and in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Boses and the name of the other Sina. The one crag rose on the north in front of Mishmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young men who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. And then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to, to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they said to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them unto, into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the man of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, killed them after him. And that first strike with Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within as if it were half a furrow's length in, the, in an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp and in the field and among the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Geba of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. And now, while Saul was talking to the priest, time with the people of Israel, the, the torment in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle, and behold, 
Every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there were, was great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that Israel had hidden themselves, that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Haven. 1 Samuel chapter 14, and we will get through a little less than half the chapter, and we just heard it read, and I don't have an introduction, so we'll just dive right into the text. Is that okay? I hope so. Chapter 14, and verses 1 through 3, we will, we will see Saul's inaction. Uh, Saul has now entered into a sequence of sin, and his sin is compounding in his own life. And of course, this ends with his own death in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 31. And verses 4 through 15, we will see Jonathan's infiltration. Nobody else is taking action, and so Jonathan does something. And in verses 16 through 23, we will see God's faithfulness to his own people again. And we will see the depth of God's mercy and we will apply the mercy of God to the way that we live as we strive to follow God practicing mercy in our lives and in our ministries. Verses 1 through 3 here. Now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he, that is Jonathan, did not tell his father, Saul. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. Now we remember the beginning of this section of the story, this this skirmish against the Philistine army, this battle against the Philistine army. Saul had reserved 3,000 men, called 3,000 men to come to battle, and he split those 3,000 men into two different companies. For himself, he reserved 2,000 men, and to Jonathan, he gave 1,000 men, and Jonathan went sneak attack on some Philistines, and they defeated the Philistines, and then the Philistine ranks came up, more than 30,000 soldiers with technology that the Israelites didn't have coming against Jonathan's company. And so they're hiding in in caves and wherever they can. Here we see that Saul's, Saul's company has now been reduced to 600 men. And Saul has not yet seen battle in this particular fight. Uh, His men have not seen battle in this particular fight. And and the reason Saul's company has gone from 2,000 to 600 is because in chapter 13, verses 7 through 8, well, that's where we see Saul reserve 2,000 men for his own company. And in chapter 14, verse 21, we see that his men were scared. They were terrified. They They were shaking. And when we get to... Uh, you know what? Let me rewind a little bit here. Um, sometimes when we're teaching, we get these things mixed up, don't we? In chapter 13, verse 7 and 8, we see that Saul's men were terrified and many were leaving. In chapter 14, verse 21, we will see that uh, 
many of Saul's men, this company that Saul had reserved for himself, they are leaving Saul and they are actually joining the Philistine army. They are defecting to the Philistine army. And so Saul himself is afraid and he's staying in the outskirts of of Gibeah and, and he is not taking action against the Philistines like a proper king ought to at this point, right? Now, it's Saul's own sin that had led up to this point. Um, Saul's own sin that caused the Philistines to come against Israel's army. He, he tried to move faster than God was moving, tried to accomplish the plan of God without God. And so the Philistines are coming against him, and his people are suffering as a result of something that he has done. And he's terrified, and he is not taking action, and his men are deserting his company, and they are joining the ranks of the Philistines because obviously the Philistines are going to win this fight. Verse 3, And Ahijah, the son of Ahitu, Bichabod's brother, and the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, that is the priestly garment. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So here nobody is taking action. Saul is not taking action. He has entered into this sin sequence. His sin is now compounding. And and by the next chapter, we're going to see that this compounding sin is actually irreversible in in Saul's life. And we will explain why some people seem to grow in faith and grow in obedience to God, while, while others seem to just continue to grow in disobedience, even trying to be religious, even trying to honor God, just their sin continues to compound and compound and compound exponentially. And there doesn't seem to be anything anybody can do about that. So that that will be next week when we see that pattern again. But Jonathan, seeing this inaction, decides to take action. and And he decides to take his armor bearer and go to see what is going on at the Philistine encampment. Verses 4 through 15. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp crag on the side and a sharp crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Seneh. The one crag rose on the north, opposite of Michmash, and the other one on the south, opposite Geba. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised Gentiles, people who are not legally the people of God, right? Perhaps the Lord will work for us. And the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Jonathan here recognizes a deep theological truth, right? A doctrinal truth. God is not restrained, God is not restrained no matter how big our enemies are. God is not restrained to save a people for himself despite our insufficiencies or anyone else's insufficiencies. So here we have Jonathan with his armor bearer. That's two men going down to see if God will lead them to defeat a Philistine garrison. And Jonathan has faith in God. And this is something quite different than what we see from Saul. A contrast is being drawn here in the story that even though Saul is supposedly, you know, reprobate uh, on, on the highway to hell and his sin is compounding, his son Jonathan 
still has faith. And so God is reserving a people for himself despite the sin of many. Verse 7, his, Jonathan's armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself, and there I am with you according to your desire. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to... This isn't the best battle, battle tactic, right? We're going to reveal ourselves to our enemies. This is Jonathan's order, right? If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. Jonathan is putting himself in his and his armor bearer in quite the circumstance. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be a sign to us. And so, in some way, this is, this is Jonathan's method for trying to discern the will of God. God, if the Philistines say one thing, then we know that you have not given them into our hands. But if they say another thing, come down to our camp then we know, God, that you have given them into our hands. And God seems to honor this in the text. When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, Behold, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will tell you something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. And we see the faith of Jonathan on display. Again, his trust that God is working all things together and that God will lead him to victory. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him, and they fell before Jonathan. And his armor bearer put some to death after him. Fell there isn't like falling prostrate to like, no, it fell there as a euphemism. It means they died. They were slain by Jonathan and Jonathan's armor bearer. Verse 14, that first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half a furrow and an acre of land. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, even the garrison and the raiders trembled and the earth quaked so that it became a great trembling. And here, God accomplishes exactly what he says he will accomplish in chapter 9 and verse 16. When he's talking with Samuel about Saul and he reveals Saul to Samuel. And he says, Samuel, this is the guy, this is the king I am choosing for myself, the prince who will deliver my people Israel from the Philistine army. Of course, we see that Saul is too lost in sin to actually be following God at this point, right? And so it is under Saul's kingship that his son, Jonathan, takes the initiative, has faith in God, and actually ends up delivering Israel from the Philistines. So God's God's promise is done here. And by the end end of the passage, we will actually see God take credit for this, which is amazing. But what we notice here is that even though Saul was unfaithful, even though God promised that if you continue to be wicked, Saul and Israel, you continue to be wicked, you continue to disobey, and you continue not to follow me, 
I will destroy you and you will be swept away. God is still faithful to his own promise to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And we begin to see a great quality about the God we serve. Mercy and patience. Mercy and patience. Verses 16 through 23 here. Now Saul's watchmen and Gibeah of Benjamin looked and behold, the multitude melted away. The multitude of, of who? Philistines melted away. And so Jonathan and his armor bearer have gone in just one garrison of 20 men, two verses 20, and, and God gives them victory over 20 men in this garrison. And the rest of the Philistine army say, oh, Maybe we've gotten ourselves in over our heads here and their ranks begin melting away. The Philistines are now retreating and they went here and they went there. They're running in multiple different directions. This isn't an organized retreat. It's like, oh, crud, the God of Israel is active and he's coming for us. Saul said to the people who were with him, number now and see who is gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So it's not until the Philistines are retreating that Saul's like, oh, something's happening. Figure out what's going on, guys. Verse 18, And then Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. While Saul talked to the priest, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. People are freaking out more and more and more. And so Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a great confusion. And so not only are the Philistines now retreating, they don't recognize their own countrymen. And so they are fighting, trying to escape, but they're slaughtering one another as they run. Verse 21, now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, who retreated from Saul's company and defected to the ranks of the Philistines, who went up with them all around the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. They were returned. God worked things out in such a way that he brought his chosen nation, Israel, back out of the ranks of the Philistines and return them to the nation of Israel, his chosen people. When all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in battle. And so, and here's where God takes the credit, so the Lord delivered Israel that day and the battle spread beyond Bethaven. Now, by this point in chapter 13 and verse 14, we, of course, we've seen Saul's wickedness. Now, his sequence of sin begins. And God reveals in chapter 13, verse 14, that he has already chosen David, already appointed David. This has already been decided. He is bringing up a man uh, who has a heart after his own heart, who will sit on the throne of Israel, rightly preparing the way for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And this is the one through whom God will establish his, his own throne. We see in this truth that the amazing fact of God's 
in dependence. Uh, the only being in existence who is truly independent is, is God. And we talk a lot about our independence. But just by the movement of this story, we see that we are absolutely dependent on someone greater than us. We are dependent on one another. We are dependent on others to provide for us. There's, there's no way. We have a lot of self-sufficient people in the room, right? But really, we think about it. There's no way that we could possibly provide every single little thing for, for ourselves. God is the only truly independent being. And it is because He is independent that He can provide all things for all people. It is because He is truly independent that He can even have mercy on Saul and on Israel when they are wicked, even when he has promised destruction for, for them. And we have seen God promise, if you remain wicked, you and your king Israel will be swept away. Last week we saw Jonathan claim victory as he took his company and and snuck attack like a ninja, another group of Philistines. And Saul took the credit. The credit was given to Saul. This time, Jonathan is the one who experiences victory again. And God is the one who takes, takes the credit. The Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Beth-Avon. Now this, I find to be an amazing truth. Right. How many of you are absolutely amazed with uh, God's great patience and his mercy, even with us? Yep. This is like the big truth that we see in this text. And then scripture uh, encourages us, in fact, instructs us to be you know, perfect as God is perfect, to be Christ-like to be the reflection of God. And I just wonder, right, what this patience has to do with the Christian life and with the the ministry of the local church. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, in chapter 9, verses 22 through, through 24, describes the patience that God has even toward unbelievers. And I want to read this for you. This is this is really amazing. Paul writes this, and these are these are structured as rhetorical questions. Chapter 9, verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Endured with much patience. And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. Of course, Romans is Paul's broad commentary on the Old Testament. And we wonder why God didn't just carry out his judgment against Israel for continuing to be wicked, even though God said, if you stay wicked, you and your king will be Swept away. Now God keeps his promise. By the end of by the end of First Samuel, Saul is dying, and it's a result of his own sin. This, the consequence of his, his own sin and his his dishonoring attitude and, and belief and action toward 
toward God. And so God is carrying out his promised punishment against Saul and against Israel, but it's, it's not swift wrath or swift justice. It's, it's slow and it's, and it's merciful. In fact, as we read through the narrative or continue to read through the narrative, it almost seems like Saul is just carrying himself on to destruction because he continues to make terrible decisions and sin against God and dive deeper into you know, the pit of sin, which leads to, to death. And so God's justice is not necessarily swift on any person, right? Uh, some well-meaning preacher might stand up and, and say something to the effect of, if America doesn't turn around then there will be swift justice and fire will rain from heaven upon us and something like that. And of course, the, the intention is, okay, we're trying to get people to start honoring God with their lives and to start reading their Bibles and to get back into church, which may be good intentions, right? But then the theology that comes out of it is just atrocious. When we see God's wrath in the Bible, most often there are occasions when it's swift, but most often it's... It's practiced with great patience and great mercy on God's part. In Romans here, chapter 9, verse 22, Paul explains it explicitly. God has patience. God has great patience toward those who do not love him, who are reprobate according to the context of Romans chapter 9, who have been prepared beforehand for destruction. God has great patience on these people not exercising his wrath right away. Why? So that he can make his power known. And so God endures those who do not love him, and he practices great mercy toward those who do not love him. And he does this to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for, for glory. Why does God endure with patience those who do not love him? Why is God merciful toward those who do not love him? It's for the sake of the elect, those whom he has prepared beforehand for glory. And God is doing this for the benefit of his people and people who do love him within the midst of those who do not love him. And this is how God is working, which is kind of amazing. Turn with me also to Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 26. We're talking about our being like God in our lives as we live and in our ministry as a local church here in, in Sunsites. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 26. And, and this verse of Scripture is very familiar to many people, both who have been in the church and and who have not, as we call this the, the passage referring to the fruit of the Spirit. And we look to this almost as a guideline for the, the Spirit that we ought to have or the fruit that we ought to bear by the Holy Spirit. Read this with me, Galatians chapter 6, verses 22 through 26. But the fruit of the Spirit, and we're going to notice God displaying quite a few of these characteristics as he's interacting in 1 Samuel with Saul and with the Israelites. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And we live by the Spirit. Let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Now, if I were preaching through Galatians or teaching through Galatians, I would probably have to take one Sunday for each of those words, each of those characteristics, each of those fruits produced by the Holy Spirit. And here I'll just we'll make a, a doctrinal point about the source of the fruit in our lives, and then I will go through this list relating it to the story of Saul, since we are walking through First Samuel and not Galatians, and then make some brief application regarding our personal lives and, and the life of our local church and the ministry of this local church here in Sunsites. Notice verse twenty two with the fruit of the Spirit. What is the source of this fruit? The Spirit, right? This means that it's not up to us to look at this list and by our muster just try and produce these things. I am going to love someone. I am going to experience peace. I am, it doesn't work like that. If you ever tried to do that, you know how impossible that is, right? Now, this is fruit produced by the Spirit. It's fruit of the Spirit. The source of this fruit is the Holy Spirit. And so if the Holy Spirit is moving in our lives, is regenerating our hearts, sanctifying us, bringing us into conformity with Jesus Christ under His perfect law, if the Holy Spirit is doing this in our lives, and this is the fruit that results in the life of the believer and in the life of the genuine, healthy, local church because the Holy Spirit is actually moving in our midst, right? And that's the doctrinal truth. This fruit is not of us, it is of the Holy Spirit. And without the Holy Spirit, we don't even have a chance here. The Holy Spirit has to move first in the regeneration of our hearts and in the sanctification of our, of our lives, our understanding and our action. This is the work that the Holy Spirit is a doing. And so for the believer, the one who truly has a relationship with Jesus, and for the true, genuine, local church, a church in which the Holy Spirit is actually moving and a church who is actually following Jesus Christ, we examine this fruit for our lives. The first one is love. This is love in the likeness of Christ's love. Now, what did Christ's love look like? Christ's love took him to the cross. He, in a very literal and, and a way that from a human perspective, very final way, gave his life for those he loves. And so if the fruit of the Spirit, the first one mentioned is love, and we looked at Jesus to know what this love is, then this love quite literally is our sacrificing of ourselves for the benefit, for the good of others. And so in our personal lives, this is the, the fruit that is developed, the first one, love. Our lives actually become very self-sacrificial. Less about us. Less about what people can give us 
or do for us, less about coming to church and getting the things we think we need or having our preferences met or being entertained or anything like that, right? All that is the opposite of what it means to truly live like a Christian. Instead, love being self-sacrificing means what can I do for others today? How can I serve others today? How can I be here for others today? How can I how can I give up my own preferences for the good of others today? It's completely the opposite of what we see with human-centered religion or self-centered living. Love is sacrificial. As a local church, love, if love is being produced in our midst, it's not just, love doesn't mean touchy-feely. And love doesn't mean when we come together, everybody just gets, gets a good feeling because we're around. Well, that's not even what love is, right? That's called a good feeling. Love is self-sacrificial. So we, if we are a body of like, true, genuine believers and the Holy Spirit is moving in our midst as a local church, love means even as a body of believers, the church at Sunsights, we are sacrificing ourselves, putting ourselves on the line, giving up all of the things that we think we should be by our preferences, right? We're not so focused inwardly that we're going to do this and have this ministry and have this event to serve us. No, we begin sacrificing of ourselves. Well, the heart of the Christian is focused outward. How can we serve others? How can we serve our community? How can we give up just being here for our comfort in order to serve the good of our community and to get the gospel out to our community and to continue to see one another grow in Christ's likeness and in conformity to Christ. That is what love is. And so we love one another and there is no limit to this love that the Holy Spirit is really moving. Now, loving someone doesn't mean we know everything about him or her. In fact, Scripture even says, love your enemies. You don't know everything about your enemies, right? Yet we are instructed to love our enemies. This love is to be a universal love, a care for people, a service to people, a being there for people. And that's what Christian love is. Joy. Joy is a happy state of the heart. doesn't mean you're happy all the time. It's a happy state of the heart. And even when we read the book of James, we see that joy can be experienced through the greatest persecution and the greatest tribulation and, and through health problems and, and even in the face of, of death, right? Joy can be experienced. In fact, it's fruit of the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is moving in our individual lives, we can maintain joy through the hardest of circumstances, through the most difficult of circumstances, and this is amazing. I've seen people who are not Christians go through hard times and joy is absent. And I've seen people who really know Christ go through hard times. And if someone is really close to Jesus, they don't even complain. They're still praying for others. They're still serving others. And they're still happy and they're still cracking jokes. It is amazing to see the difference 
between a Christian and a non-Christian through difficult times, you can tell there is evidence of the Holy Spirit moving. Joy is fruit of the Spirit. Peace. Individually, if we are regenerated, our hearts are regenerated, and we are being sanctified, we experience peace. Now, this is something different from the joy, right? Peace here means that those who actually know Jesus, those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells and the Holy Spirit is is guiding them, they are moved to, as much as it depends on them, live at peace, peace with everyone. That's how the Apostle Paul would write it in the book of Romans. As as much as it depends on you, live at peace with, with everyone. In the local church context that the Holy Spirit is moving in our midst and producing this fruit in the lives of the people of God. And there's peace among the believers who are gathered here. And we are seeking to, as much as it depends on us, live at peace with other church groups and with those in the community. With all people, it's peace. It's the fruit of the Spirit. This thing is produced in and through those who really know Jesus, who really have the Holy Spirit. Patience, which is what we read about today. Patience is fruit produced in the believer by the Holy Spirit, from the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. And we are amazed in in this section of the narrative in 1 Samuel when God has such patience with Saul. In fact, God will take his time. It's not until chapter 31 in 1 Samuel where God actually finishes carrying out his wrath against Saul and against Israel for this sin that Saul commits, right? And then the compounding sin afterwards. God has so much patience toward the worst of sinners. And if we are to be like God, if we are to be conformed to the image of Christ, then the Holy Spirit is producing patience in and through in and through our lives. This means that God's patience, the very patience we see described in our text for today, this is the patience being produced in lives of believers. Kindness. This means that we are not hateful or resentful or mean about anything as individual believers or as local churches. Kindness. Goodness. This means that we are good to others, not being overly critical, not being gossips or not speaking hatefully about any person or group. And even those with other moral, theological or political preferences, we are good to them, right? And goodness is fruit produced in and through the life of the believer by the Holy Spirit, and it reflects God's goodness. There are a lot of people, including Saul, who do not agree with God, who are not on the same page as God, who maybe think that they're trying to honor God, but really they're just compounding their own sinfulness and disbelief in who God really is. And God is good to them. God is good to all sinners. And all sinners get to experience this degree of God's mercy and His patience, whether they will ever love Him 
or not, God is good to them because He is faithful and He is independent. Gentleness. You guys know what gentleness is, right? This is a very gentle crowd, right? <laughs> so far. We'll see what happens after I say what I'm going to say. No. This means that we are careful not to be abrasive in our actions or speech, right? There was a time for Martin Luther, a bull in a china shop. That is not to be normative for the Christian life. Christians are gentle. That is the fruit produced in the life of the believer. And then self-control here. This means that the Holy Spirit actually enables us to keep ourselves from doing those things that in our flesh we really want to do. Amen. Self-control. And the flesh, man, it sneaks up on us. And we've got to act and we've got to do this. We've got to attack. The Holy Spirit actually enables us to control those tendencies, to control those reactions. This is fruit produced by the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. It's not something that comes naturally. It happens through regeneration and sanctification. Here we are also encouraged. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 26. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. This would be like the individual or the church body that is always having to correct what I see wrong or to demean others or be condescending of others because they don't believe like we do. They don't think like we do. They don't have the same moral principles that we do. They don't have the same political viewpoint that we do. And so we're going to prove how we are better than them and how we are more worthy of having people come to this church or follow us. Galatians chapter 6 instructs us otherwise. Do, do not become boastful. Let us not be challenging one another all the time. Let us not be envying one another. Where is our focus to be as Christians? On Christ. And Christ leading us, that's, that's all we're concerned with, right? We're not having to compete with or challenge other bodies of believers. We, just, we are here to worship Christ according to the word of Christ, according to the preferences of, of Christ. Our eyes are to be on Christ and he will direct us and he will lead us where he wants us to go and that is what we are to be concerned with. We don't have to be envious and we don't have to boast about ourselves. Fruit of the Spirit, you know, kind of works against boasting, right? Gentleness works against boasting. Love works against boasting. Goodness works against boasting. Self-control works against, against boasting. Peace and patience, they all work against boasting. Boasting is the thing that comes natural for us. Our not boasting about who we are, what we do, we think we're better than everybody else. That's, that's something that the Holy Spirit enables us to do, produces within us, and so that we can walk humbly and serve our God honestly. Now this being realized, there, there is a great message that our community and 
we need to be aware of this too, right? I think this is the heart of the church already. So I'm not saying anything that we don't already believe. It just it needs to be verbalized for our community because there are so many people in our community who have been burned by religion or have been burned by a particular local church because the fruit of the Spirit is absent. And because some people find it necessary to use the Word of God to teach things that, are, that the Bible doesn't teach. And that breaks my heart most of all that there are so many out there using the Word of God or teaching from the Word of God but not actually teaching the Word of God. That breaks my heart. And so to our community, I, I want our community to know this. Here at the church at Sunsites, we will practice love toward you, period. And if anybody has a problem with that, we will practice right church discipline. We will practice love. I hope everybody's okay with that in here, right? We will practice love toward our community. We will be patient with those in our community. We will practice peace toward those in our community. We will have self-control when it comes to when it comes to divisive issues and when it comes to, to things that tend to spur on division and hatred in the heart of flesh, we will have self-control because the Holy Spirit empowers us, enables us to do this. We will not use teaching time to complain or to gripe about someone's sin, anyone's sin. We will not use this time to gripe about homosexuality. We will not use this time to gripe about drinking. We will not use this time to gripe about someone's political affiliation or moral stance on any issue. Our goal, our purpose as a local church is grander than this. We want people to know the whole purpose of God. Which means we teach His scriptures and we walk through it verse by verse here which keeps us from griping about our personal pet peeves. We don't do that here. And our community needs to know that because unfortunately the experience that many in our community have had with church is that somebody will stand up, claim to teach the Word of God, and instead teach something else and gripe about all the stuff they think is wrong in the world. And whether they've experienced that here in this community or somewhere else, that is the perception that I'm running into as I engage our community. And it is awful, and it is wrong, and it is unbiblical, and it is unchristlike, and it is, dare I say, not even Christian. We are moved by the Holy Spirit to practice patience, gentleness, and self-control. And we just want people to hear the Word of God. And the amazing truth is, and you can look to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 for this amazing truth, is that the Word of God, God's Word, His law, has been given by Him for the benefit of those who are unrighteous and those who are in sin. It has been given for the benefit of the homosexual and for the drunkard and for the murderer and for the rebellious and for the person lost in some sort of addiction. God's word has been given for the benefit of these. 
In fact, we identify with people locked in all sorts of different kinds of sins because we were too. And God had mercy and grace toward us. So this is the message that I want our community to hear. I want our community to hear about God's patience and mercy. And we want to invite them here to be loved and cared for. And to experience the the peace of God that comes with the Holy Spirit. And we're a room full of people. The great philosopher, Virginia Stevens, once said, (laughs) if people just weren't so peopleish. We're full of people, all right? People are still peopleish. But the fact is, in the last year, I've seen this community of believers, this local church, grow so much. And not just the knowledge of grace. We, we preach the doctrines of grace here. And so we, we had that. We have that. But we have grown in our practice of grace. I'm so amazed when Christians who believe they are saved by grace have no idea how to practice grace. Let us be different. Let us be a staple. Our community needs us to be this. And to be honest, we need us to be this too. All the time. Let's reflect on these things. I hope that we are encouraged by God's patience, His faithfulness, His mercy, His independence. But let us be moved from our hearts to action as we love and care for our community.